0: Hope, uh, I hope you all enjoyed celebrating Christmas this past week. And I hope you took time to reflect on the reality of the incarnation and the, the miracle that it is that Jesus, the, the God-man, came to be like us, to take on flesh, to come in our place. And because of the perfect life that he lived and because of the death that he died, we can stand forgiven before God we place our hope in Him. The reason that we celebrate Christmas is grace. And grace is something that we as a church are excited about. We are called Grace Church. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's it's what we do not deserve God has given us. And this is what we've been singing about this morning. This is why we come to God in prayer. It's amazing grace that has saved us. And it's amazing grace that, that keeps us. The hymn says, Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that's brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. Our prayer as a church is that the grace of God mark us and, and characterize us. We want to see the eternal blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus seep into every nook and cranny of our day-to-day lives. We want to make much of him because of all that he has done. We offer our lives. And worship to him. And when we've received this amazing grace, when we have been the recipients of God's undeserved favor, we want to tell others about it. This is a grace that calls us to go and to be on mission because we want to see more and more and more people come to know this God who has miraculously saved us by his grace. We, are, we serve a God who brings dead things to life. We were once dead in our sins, but have now been made alive together with Christ by grace. We've been saved. Pastor Scotty Smith says this, The more the gospel takes hold in our churches, the more we will be outward facing in mission not inward-facing in fear. Let me repeat that. The more the gospel takes hold in our churches, the more we will be outward-facing in mission, not inward-facing in fear. Grace comes to us in order that it might flow through us. But the problem for us is, it can be a whole lot easier to be inward-facing in fear. It's a whole lot easier to make for ourselves a, a cultural island, separate from the world around us, where everyone thinks like, we think this is what happened to the disciples after Jesus was crucified. He was crucified, and they locked themselves in a room, alone on a, on their cultural island. They took themselves out of the world in fear. Biblical, Biblical Christianity is more and more strange to the cultural culture around us. I know for me, it can be a whole lot easier to gather together with a small group of Christians. It can be a whole lot easier for me when I used to be in, the, uh, in sales to go have lunch by myself or with another Christian friend than it was to sit around with my coworkers and talk about the latest news or, or the latest sitcom or whatever it was. We like to, it can be easy to like to live in this, in this Christian bubble, only interacting with Christians, working with Christians. And we can fear what happens when we step outside that bubble. We can fear the questions that might come. Will they talk about homosexuality or will they talk about marriage or will they be an atheist or for me will they find out i'm a pastor it's like these fears that we have they can be debilitating to us as we are to be outward facing in mission but really we stay inward facing in fear we can fear will we be called a bigot or seen as behind the times because we believe these words still speak to us today Maybe you can relate to these, these questions and, and fears. Maybe it's far easier for you to be inward-facing in fear rather than outward-facing in mission. But that's not what grace calls us to. That's not what grace, how it works itself out in our lives. That's not what it looks like to abide in Christ, to be identified with him. We are Christ's ambassadors His emissaries, his representatives. And an emissary is someone who is inextricably linked to the sender. It's like Paul sitting here with his Redskins jersey. He's representing the Redskins. We are Christ's ambassadors, and it goes so much deeper, and it's more significant than a jersey that you might put on. But we represent Christ as Christians. As Christians, our identity is wholly wrapped up in Jesus. And whether or not the questions and fears that are raised are are real or figurative for you, Jesus tells us if we follow him, if we hope in him, we are going to face opposition. We're going to face hostility. We are going to be strange in this world. We're going to live as aliens and exiles. In our passage today, we're going to be looking at John 15, verse 17, through the beginning of chapter 16. Our passage today looks to prepare us for this hostility. It teaches us how to be ready for opposition. In this extended of extended section of John known as the farewell discourse, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, his faithful disciples for his departure. These are his his parting words. This is his final address. And Jesus is communicating how his disciples should live and what they should expect after he leaves. If you remember back, back in John 13, Jesus gives a new commandment. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This love is a, a marking off love. It's a distinguishing factor, distinguishing characteristic for the Christian community. And then in John 14, Jesus tasks his disciples with continuing in his work. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater greater works than these will he do. And Jesus promises a helper, a comforter, an advocate, the Holy Spirit that will be with his people and bring peace. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then two weeks ago, in the previous sermon of our series in John, Jesus uses the analogy of a vine and its branches to signify the relationship of Jesus with his community of disciples. Abide in me. If you remember... Larry laid out for us that a true disciple is one who abides in Jesus the same way he abides in his Father. And how does Jesus abide? Jesus abides by keeping the Father's commandments and resting in his love. And that's what we're called to as well. And from here, Jesus transitions to remind his disciples and us that this path of abiding it's not an easy one. Jesus prepares his own for the hostility they are going to face. And Jesus wants his faithful disciples to be prepared for, it's to come, for what is to come. The road ahead will be fraught with difficulty and challenges and even death. But Jesus shows that this opposition should not be reason to fear or to give up or to no longer trust God. Rather, Jesus shows that hostility to our mission should lead to confidence in our mission. The opposition the disciples face The opposition and hostility that we may face or have faced should give us reason for hope. It should strengthen us and give us confidence. The hostility we face should not lead to us being inward facing in fear, but outward facing in mission. So let's now turn to John chapter 15 and see just why the world's hostility should be a source of confidence for us today. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 17. This is the word of God. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The hatred and hostility of the world. Is not reason for us to fear today, or to fall away, or to give up. Rather, it gives us reason for confidence, for hope, for trust in God. The big idea that we'll be getting after this morning is hostility to our mission should lead to confidence in our mission. Hostility to our mission should lead to confidence in our mission. And that mission is to extend grace to all people, to tell all people of the saving work of Jesus Christ. The hatred of the world should serve to embolden and strengthen our faith. Hostility to our mission is not evidence that your best life now is not working anymore. Hostility to our mission shows that your best life is for all eternity. This passage lays out three characteristics of hostility we face. And we can use these characteristics as something of a litmus test for our own fidelity to the mission God has given us as his chosen people. So we're going to look at three characteristics of hostility. Number one, the hostility we face is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at that first paragraph, verses 17 through 25. Jesus, after calling his disciples to abide in him, obey him, and bear fruit for him, says in verse 17, These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This verse is is transitional. It looks back at all that Jesus has commanded. Abide, remain, obey, bear fruit, and calls true disciples to love one another. Remember back in 1335, Jesus says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love in the Christian community is a marking off love. Love sets us apart from the world. It's a characterizing love, a dividing love. And Jesus contrasts this love that we have in the Christian community, this love of one another, with the hatred of the world. The life that we as Christians are called to is not frictionless. It rubs up against that which the world loves. It doesn't quite fit in. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, We are called to live lives that confound the watching world, confound the world around us. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, the world hates you. Grace Church, your love for one another will set you apart from the world. It's going to look different from the world. The love of the Christian community does not find its end in tolerance. The goal of love is not just accepting all people as they are and leaving them there. The love of the Christian community does not find its end in open-mindedness. The goal of love is not accepting truth as relative, the idea that what's true for you is good for you. No, the love of the Christian community finds its end and it finds its beginning in a person, in Jesus Christ Jesus calls us to love one another as he has loved us. Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in this first paragraph, Jesus unpacks the reason for the hatred, hostility, opposition, and persecution. It's because of him. Jesus says there in verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then again in verse 21, he says, All these things they will do to you on account of my name. The world despises who Jesus is. And, church, because it's about him, understand that this battle is a battle that goes beyond the flesh and blood. When John talks about the world, we need to understand what he's talking about. The world is that which is under the control of the evil one, the devil. The world is under the control of, of the devil. When a group of Jews are challenging who Jesus is back in John 8, let's actually turn there real quick. Just flip back a few pages to John 8. Look at what Jesus says in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes that all of fallen mankind walks following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Then later in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul calls Christians to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The world is under the control of the evil one. But there is a battle raging, and we know that Jesus, Jesus is the seed of the woman that crushes the serpent's head. We know how this battle goes on. We know who will ultimately win this battle because we know and we hope in Jesus, our Lord, the Christ. The hymn Martin Luther wrote in 1529, The Prince of Darkness Grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And he goes on to say, That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts eyes through him, through him who with us sideth. We stand with Jesus. Christ came into the world and has spoken to this world, as verse 22 says. Jesus has made it clear who he is and who sent him, the Father. Yet the world despises him. And Jesus tells his disciples that this is going to be the case for them as well. And the same is true for us today. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, this world is no longer your home. You are a stranger now, an exile, a sojourner not meant for this place. The hostility from the world is a product of abiding in Christ. The world will hate you because of me, as Jesus says. And this abiding in Christ is a community-building activity. Colossians 3.11 says this about the church. Here In the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Abiding in Christ builds a community of love that represents Jesus, that looks like Christ. Russell Moore says this In the church, the powers that be see a pilot project of the kingdom of God, which is plowing alongside their own empire. That's because when they see the church, they don't see a society. They see one new man. They see the vine of God and the branches joined to him, bearing much fruit. Today, they hear in the songs and sermons of the church an ancient promise of a human ruler who will crush their reptilian skulls. He is our hope. The hostility we face is about a person, Jesus Christ. And when we are hated mocked, belittled because of Jesus, we don't need to shrink back in fear. Hostility to our mission should lead to confidence in our mission because our hope is in this snake crusher. Our hope isn't in what we do. It's in what he has done and will do. He has walked this path before us, as we sang earlier. He has walked this path before us, and he is walking with us still. We can have confidence when we face hostility in the name of Jesus because it's about him, not about us. The hostility proves whose we are. This is Jesus' reminder as he's heading out of the world. But what about when Jesus departs? That's number two. Number two, the hostility we face continues because of the testimony of the Spirit and the Word. The hostility we face continues because of the testimony of the Spirit and the Word. Jesus has told his disciples that the world will hate them on his own account. And throughout the farewell discourse Jesus is making clear that he is going to leave them. He is going to depart. How will this hostility persist after he departs? When Jesus answers this question here in verses 26 and 27. First, in verse 26, Jesus highlights the role of the Spirit. He will send from the Father the Spirit of truth. But look again how Jesus refers to the spirit of truth at the beginning of this verse, 26. When the helper comes. Helper doesn't fully encompass all that this word means. In other translations, the word used is comforter or counselor. And oftentimes you'll see advocate. When the helper or or comforter or advocate comes, he will bear witness about me. While the world is under the rule of the father of lies, we have a helper an advocate. And he is for us. And he bears witness about Jesus. As Jesus departs from this world, he leaves with us the spirit of truth who testifies about Jesus. But that's not all. Look second at verse 27. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Here Jesus is speaking directly to his Disciples, those who have seen Him and ministered with Him and been taught by Him. These are the very ones, John being primary among them, who write the words that we have here in our New Testament. They bear witness about Christ through their word. In John 20.31, the theme verse of our series through the Gospel of John, John writes this. He writes so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John writes... To bear witness about Christ. He writes to fulfill what Jesus says in verse 27 here. And this word still speaks to us today. His word still speaks and still bears witness to him. These disciples' words still ring out today, 2,000 years later. John, Peter, Matthew, they still speak. Jesus leaves us his word, his unchanging, always true, trustworthy word to testify about him, to remind us of him, to tell us just who he is. And it's on account of these, spirit and word, that we will face hostility. Because they both, the spirit and the word, they point to Jesus. They are about Jesus. These are the primary and first witnesses to Christ. But now the church bears witness about Christ. Generation after generation... Century after century, through the spirit and the testimony of the apostles, the church now bears witness about Jesus Christ. He gives us, the church, these rails, spirit and word, who bear witness about him to keep us faithful, to help us, and to guide us. But we have a danger of falling off these rails. We have a danger of becoming confident in what we do, in our own thinking, and fail to rely on God's Word. And what this means is that not all hostility we face is good hostility. Hostility is not de facto a badge of honor. It's only a badge of honor if it points to Christ, if it's about Christ, not about us. Not all hostility should be confidence-inducing. Let me show you what I mean. Back in the 50s and 60s, Many Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian churches in the southern United States faced growing cultural opposition. These were churches that held to the sufficiency of Scripture. They believed that God's Word was right and was true and was all that they needed. And they preached a gospel of repentance and faith. These were churches that seemed good in the face of hostility. And they could have pointed to this opposition they faced as proof of their faithfulness. They could have looked at John 15 as validation that this hatred comes because of their faithfulness to carry out the mission. But they would have been dead wrong. The reason these churches faced hostility is because these churches, just 50 or 60 years ago in our own country, they weren't rooted in Jesus. The hostility they faced wasn't rooted in Jesus. The hostility wasn't because they bore witness and spirit and truth to Christ. No, the hostility they faced was because they held to an unbiblical category of segregation. Listen to what some of these churches said back in this time. In 1954, the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi, made this statement. This church declares that segregation of the races is not discrimination and declares that this church shall, with goodwill toward all men, maintain traditional policy and practice of distinct separation of the races. Then in in 1963, also in Jackson, Mississippi, a prominent Methodist church released this statement. 1963, the practice of the separation of the races in Galloway Memorial Methodist Church is a time-honored tradition. We earnestly hope that the perpetuation of that tradition will never be impaired. It's sickening. This is sickening. In the midst of cultural hostility, in the midst of perceived faithfulness, these churches could not have been more wrong in what they thought of as faithfulness. They were being persecuted for. The stance these Bible-believing churches took was reprehensible, both culturally but far more important. It was repre- reprehensible biblically. So how do we today protect ourselves from this kind of error? How do we protect ourselves from being blind like we can see they were very clearly blind? When the church is increasingly maligned by the culture around us, And it's pressed to be more tolerant and more forgiving. What is it about the hostility that we face that should give us confidence that we are on the right track? The answer is that it is critical that we know God's word, which testifies to Jesus. We must be creatures of the word. We must be defined by who God reveals himself to be here. We must study it and know it and let our thinking be shaped by it. And I want to highlight just two simple ways in the coming year, that we as a church can, can seek to protect ourselves, that we can stay between these rails. First, this is the last Sunday before the new year, and people like to make resolutions. You don't have to make resolutions. But what you do need to do is read God's Word and have a plan to read God's Word. It will do you a great service come January 1st, January 2nd, if you know where you're going in your Bible, a couple months ago I shared a story of my son and how he had just his Bible fell out of the truck and he it opened up and he said, "Dad, I'm supposed to read First Kings. God really wants me to read First Kings." Don't have that plan. <laughs> Do a little bit more work, and I hopefully I'd like to. I haven't talked to anybody about this, but get uh, get some recommended plans that just for reading through the Bible. Getting into God's Word, get them up on our, on our website or we'll distribute them through CCB. But just something to serve you. So have a plan to read God's Word. If we don't read God's Word, we won't know God's Word. And God's Word is about Jesus. So if we don't know God's Word, we won't know Jesus. Second, second way, just practical, memorize Scripture. Hide God's Word in your heart. This coming year as a church, we, we have been doing Scripture memory together. We're going to continue doing that. But this coming year, we're going to go through 1 John together. There's a hundred, I think, five verses in First John. It's about two verses a week, so we can memorize a whole book of the Bible together over the course of the year, and it's a way for us to hide God's Word in our heart, to treasure up all that He says, to know God's Word, to protect us. If we live here, if we live lives marked by Scripture, then our lives will be rooted in Jesus. And the hostility met by faithful Christians in the world that are creatures of the Word. It's not about them, it's about about him. And Jesus gives us the helper, the spirit of truth, and his word to testify about him. This is the testimony that we must stake our lives on. We live here. Then when hostility comes, we should face it with unshakable confidence. So the hostility we face is about Jesus Christ. The hostility we face is because of the testimony of the spirit and word. And third, the hostility we face should point us back to Jesus. This is the beginning of chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Jesus says in verse 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The road ahead for the disciples is not going to be easy. The inevitability of the opposition and hostility and persecution is real. All that they face can lead them to want to fall away, to want to give up, to want to throw in the towel, Jesus then goes into describing what they will face and the reason they will face it. In verse 2, he describes the what. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Let's not take this lightly. The future prospects for the disciples entailed religious scorn and persecution that could lead to death. The synagogue was a religious center for the Jews. It was where God's people, the Israelites, would go to hear God's word, the law, and the prophets. But followers of Jesus, they were going to be thrown out of these places, just like Jesus had been. They were to be outsiders, exiles, and strangers. But more than that, the hour was coming when they would be killed, because people thought they were offering service to God. It wasn't going to be out of spite or bitterness, but out of a desire to be faithful that they were going to be killed. Remember how we defined the world earlier? It's that which is under the control of the evil one. And who is that evil one? It's the devil, the father of lies, And what deception he brings when those who think they follow God kill those who really do follow God. This is the convoluted, upside-down nature of sin. Sin distorts. Sin blinds. Sin confuses. And Jesus Jesus tells us back in John eight forty four 44 that, that sin kills. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. Jesus offers the explanation of this pers- for this persecution in verse 3. Here's the, the why. They will do these things, because they have not known the Father, nor me. The reason these things happen is because they don't know me. Is what Jesus says. Think about that. This, this factor is one that can change. They kill because they don't know the one true God, but they can know the one true God. Because the Spirit and the Word and the church, they testify about Jesus. In some sense, this points us back to our mission. To call all men to know God, to see God, to trust God and obey God. Amidst the opposition and hostility we face as Christians, we can't forget the hope that there is in a God who brings dead things to life. We must know that our enemy, our enemy is not those people we come up against that might call us bigots, or that might persecute us, or might be hostile towards us. No, our enemy is the devil himself. Our enemy is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the desires of the flesh. Russell Moore says this, the people who disagree with us aren't part of some conspiracy as though they were cartoon supervillains plotting in a lair. They are, like all of us, seeing a way that's seeking a way that seems right to them. We ought to love those who see us as bigots. They are not our enemy. Our enemy is the father of lies. Our enemy is Satan, the accuser of the brothers. He is the one who deceives and distorts God's good order. He is the one who convinces that earthly pleasure is all that's worth living for. He is the one who sows seeds that say our feelings and desires, what we think and crave, the ultimate source, are the ultimate source of truth. He is the one who leads people to always eat and never be satisfied. He is the one who brings people to kill. In the name of God. Our enemy is this ancient serpent. Our enemy is the devil himself. Not those he preys upon. The people of this world, those who do not know the Father, who do not know the Son, who have not received the Spirit, they will be hostile to us because we are different. They will be hostile to us because we are different. We have been chosen by God. As Jesus says back in verse 19, we have been chosen by God out of the world. You did not choose me, Jesus says back in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that you should abide. Were it not for God's gracious choosing of you, you would be of the world, under the rule of the prince of darkness. And perhaps... That's you today. Perhaps you are still dead in your sins. But I have good news for us today. Because God, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace, you have been saved. The simple explanation for the hope we have today as Christians in the face of hostility is grace. Grace, this unmerited favor, this undeserved blessing. Grace enables us to abide, to remain in the love of God, to live in a community characterized by His love. Because in Him, in Christ, we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Him. H.B. Charles, a pastor in Jacksonville, says this, If you are in Christ, you are richly, completely, and eternally blessed. If you are in Christ, you're not looking for a blessing, waiting for a blessing, hoping for a blessing. You are already blessed. It has nothing to do with what the doctor reports. It has nothing to do with how other people treat you. It has nothing to do with how much you have in the bank. If you are in Christ, you are already blessed. And how did it get this way? Grace. Grace. This world, this world may offer you temporary peace, because if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Sin can offer you temporary satisfaction, but in Christ, oh, in Christ, we have grace eternal to keep us from falling away. We have grace in Christ that will not ever disappoint. It will not ever fail. Regardless of what may come in this world, we know what awaits us in eternity. Let's stake our lives on that. And whenever we face Christ, Christ is all. Here's his words here at the beginning of verse 4 I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus wants his true disciples. He wants us to be prepared for what is to come as we abide in him. He wants he wants us to know that what we come, against, when we come up against will serve to point back to Him. He wants us, when we come up to hostility in His name, that we remember His words. We remember the grace that He has shown us. So hostility should point you back to His grace. Hostility to our mission, it leads to confidence in our mission. When we are in Christ, when we abide in Him and bear great fruit for Him, hostility, it will come. Opposition will come. And you'll face awkward moments at times. You may face pointed questions. You may even face ridicule. And you may even face death. But because of who Jesus is, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's said and what he's done, we can have confidence in the midst of this opposition, in the face of hostility. As Christians, people may call you crazy for the biblical stance you may take on sexual morality or on gender issues or on the words you don't say or on the things you don't watch but if the world calls you crazy for these things they don't even know the half of it because as Christians as Christians we stake our lives on the birth of a baby born in a little town 2,000 years ago we place our hope in a man who lived and died on a cross 2,000 years ago We place our trust, though, in a man who didn't stay dead. We place our trust in a man whose bones are not lying in some grave in the Middle East. No, we place our trust in the living God. And he is coming again. He is still alive, and he reigns over all. He rules over all, and he is our hope. So if somebody calls you crazy for what you don't watch... Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them you are waiting for the coming of a warrior king who's riding on a white horse to judge the living and the dead. That's who we hope in. We hope in Jesus, because when He is Lord of your life, this world may hate you, darkness may come, but take heart, because He He has overcome the world. So in closing, I just want to highlight two points of application. Here are two ways we can answer the question: What do I do with this text? What I do this week with this text? Number one, pray for those who are persecuted. Persecution is real in this world, and the Bible teaches that the church, the church is the body of Christ. And when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. It's estimated that 322 Christians die every month because of their faith. 322 Christians die every month because of their faith. Ten a day. There's, uh, I think, 214 churches are destroyed every month because of what they stand for. Let us get on our knees for those who suffer in the name of Jesus. Because if the day comes when that's us, if the day comes when it's our church that we are being put out of, we want those saints, those brothers and sisters to be praying for us, do we not? Around this world this week, many of our brothers and sisters will gather together as local churches and risk imprisonment. They'll risk abandonment from their family. They will even risk death for Jesus. So let us pray for them. That the, world would give them, that the Lord would give them strength and faith. That they would remember the blessings that are theirs eternally in Jesus. That they know they live, not for this world, but for an eternal glory over earthly peace. Pray that these Christians would have growing confidence in the face of hostility. Uh, I came across uh, this past week, there's a site, opendoorsusa.org, which is a great resource just for what is going on in the world and where people are being persecuted. Um, and it you give you some good, some good prayer points. So pray for those who are persecuted. Number two, prepare yourself for persecution. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for what you may face this week because of what you believe? What you may face this year because of what you believe? Or in the next decade because of what you believe? Or will you shrink back in fear? Are you ready to die for Jesus? And that's a question I think we can, we can throw around flippantly. But really, are you ready for, to die for Jesus? Are you so confident in the grace that is yours in Christ? that you're willing to suffer for it. You may be required to answer these questions far sooner than you think. And as Christians today, we can't just sit back and live on our cultural island. Our beliefs, they don't make sense to the world around us because they are not of this world. Brothers and sisters, get used to it. We don't belong here. We don't belong to the prince of the power of the air. We don't belong to this world. We belong to Christ. Ours is a kingdom unending. Ours is a victory that is sure. And we live as representatives of another. Our lives are not our own and we must be ready and willing to lose our lives for the sake of Jesus. Hostility to our mission should lead to confidence in our mission. We're going to close by singing together the hymn written by Henry Light. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. It's not something we've sung together as a church. I'll sing the first couple of verses and then invite you guys to join in. But it, it reminds us of, of what we take on as those who are in Christ. Listen to the verses here. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. All to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition All I've sought or hoped or known Yet how rich is my condition God and heaven are still my own Let the world despise and leave me They have left my savior too Human hearts and looks deceive me Thou art not like them untrue Oh, while thou dost smile upon me God of wisdom, love, and might Foes may hate And friends, disown me. Show thy face, and all is bright. The hymn concludes with this verse. Haste thee on from grace to glory. Armed by faith and winged by prayer, heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide thee there. Soon shall close the earthly mission. Soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition. Faith to sight and prayer to praise.